Welcome to Plato's Projects with James Graff, where we pursue Plato's projects of developing adequate theories of the good and the true in conversation with academic philosophy, but also with academia in general. Socrates believed that no one is deprived of knowledge willingly. We all want not merely to believe, but also to know. But what is it that we seek to know? Obviously, it is the truth that we seek to know. For whatever our goals, knowledge helps us attain them. But what is knowledge? What, for that matter, is truth? For over 2,300 years, philosophy has been seeking answers to these questions. Philosophers who study these questions are called epistemologists, after the Greek word episteme, knowledge, and their philosophical discipline is epistemology. So, is it possible to answer humanity's most basic questions about the nature of knowledge and how to get it? In this first 10-episode series, I share the 10 chapters of my own book, Knowledge by Acceptance, 2nd Edition. This book presents a novel analysis of knowledge, a list of conditions that, when met, indicate that a person knows something, rather than merely believing it. The no-unacceptable-element analysis of knowledge it proposes overcomes the problems that have plagued such theories to date, known as the Gettier problems. But it goes beyond this solution to make the analysis of knowledge truly practical for everyday use by human beings, rather than merely usable within idealized thought experiments in which the truth of the matter has been predetermined. Owing to time constraints, I have used a synthesized voice, the best I have ever found, in fact, to read the text. This best voice happens to be female. In addition, I have not been able to shape the text in detail as I normally would. As a result, it will sometimes read a word incorrectly. If you hear a word that doesn't sound quite right, please imagine the word on the written page to figure out what was written. Of course, the best thing to do to truly understand everything is to buy the book, which is available on Amazon in ebook and paperback formats. More information about the book and about myself can be found on my website, jamesgraff.org, and that's graph spelled G-R-A-F. I hope you enjoy the reading. Knowledge by Acceptance, Second Edition By James Graff Copyright 2019 James Graff All Rights Reserved Chapter 2, The Basic View of Knowledge Our goal is to develop a theory of knowledge that can withstand scrutiny. To pursue this goal, we will use my own interpretation of a well-known technique within philosophy, which political philosopher John Rawls called reflective equilibrium. Following my interpretation of this technique, we begin by examining what seem to be the best common intuitions about the topic. Then we develop a precise philosophical theory, inspired by those intuitions, that generally fits with those intuitions. Next, we critique the theory, 
looking for instances where it does not fit, with our intuitions derived from the empirical evidence available to us at present, including new evidence not available when the theory was developed. As we continue this process of swinging from intuition to theory and back like a pendulum, our goal is to arrive at a theory that can explain all of our experience-based intuitions, thus arriving at an equilibrium between theory and intuition. Concerning these experience-based intuitions, naturally, where applicable, we will want to compare the theory with empirical evidence available from the sciences. But since philosophers are not and cannot be experts in all of the sciences that apply to the big questions they explore, and since this evidence is not available on all topics, more commonly philosophers deploy instead the traditional tools of analytic philosophy. One such tool is to analyze how the concept in question is used in everyday language. From this starting point, the philosopher refines the language's concepts wherever required to create a coherent and precise network of concepts. We do this on the assumption that natural languages evolved over a long period of time in a manner constrained by at least obvious everyday experiences. If one's language was failing to provide a concept necessary to make sense of everyday experience, or deployed concepts that were ambiguous and thus caused confusion rather than providing clarity, the language would tend to evolve over time via the coining of new concepts sometimes via borrowing from other languages and the modification of the meaning of some concepts so as to increase clarity. Thus, the assumption is that much empirical evidence, at least concerning matters of everyday experience, is encoded in one's language. So, one looks within that language for difficult-to-refute intuitions about the concept in question, which in this case is the concept of knowledge. Another such tool is the thought experiment concerning everyday experience. One looks for difficult-to-refute intuitions that fall out of that thought experimental situation. In such ways we compare the theory's implications with intuitions derived from everyday experience. Where the theory is found to be incompatible with difficult-to-refute intuitions, we revise or replace the theory to make it compatible. Then we again look for difficult-to-refute intuitions, such as within language or within specific experiences as framed in thought experiments, that contradict the theory. We continue this process until we either arrive at a version of the theory that conforms with all or most of the difficult-to-refute intuitions we could imagine, or else abandon the theory. Thus, the philosopher swings back and forth between specific experience-based and thus difficult-to-refute intuitions about specific everyday experiences that are uncontroversial and theory. If a version of the theory deemed sufficiently strong survives this iterative refinement process, the theory is proposed to be true. If the philosopher has been unable to test the theory against scientifically derived empirical evidence during the preceding process, this is a good point for scientists to critique the theory by testing whether it conforms with their scientific empirical evidence, triggering a new attempt to reach reflective equilibrium. Thus, to explore how much we think we know and how we know it, we begin by looking to our everyday experience with the topic i.e. with propositional knowledge. We begin by examining how people seem to use the word know in everyday speech. A prominent philosopher of the theory of knowledge, Richard Feldman, speaks of what he calls the standard view of knowledge, the view he thinks most of us hold about our knowledge. It is important to stress here that, like Feldman, I am not at this point taking a stand on whether the standard view is correct or not.
Rather, I am laying out the standard view as a tentative proposal for argument's sake. As Feldman articulates it, the standard view of knowledge has two components. The first component concerns the topics about which we humans have a great deal of knowledge, and the second concerns our sources of knowledge about these topics. I will follow Feldman on these components, with the exception of limiting the list of categories that will be included in the first component of the view of knowledge. As such, I will give the view of knowledge I will propose a different name, the basic view of knowledge. I will also add a third component to the basic view, but I will argue that this component was in fact implied within Feldman's account of the standard view, and so this will not constitute a departure from Feldman's account but rather the making explicit of something implicit. As a final note, when we are seeking to understand the nature of knowledge we must discuss two distinct practical contexts in which the concept of knowledge is central. In the first context, that of knowledge seeking, the individual is, over a period of time, conducting activities so as to acquire new knowledge or else verify existing knowledge. A woman who hires a private investigator to find out whether her husband has been unfaithful to her is paying someone to seek this knowledge for her. In the second context, that of knowledge attribution, an individual is, more or less at a single point in time, deciding whether, concerning a given proposition, someone, whether they themselves or someone else, possesses knowledge. To return to our example, let us say that the private investigator completes his investigation and presents to the woman the evidence he has found, and his conclusion concerning whether her husband has been unfaithful. Having reviewed that new evidence, the woman must decide whether either the investigator or she herself now knows the proposition that her husband has been unfaithful. The distinction between these two practical contexts in which the concept of knowledge is central, that of knowledge-seeking, and that of knowledge-attribution, will especially be helpful for us when formulating the third component of the basic view. With that distinction drawn, let's begin with our discussion of the first component, the topics about which people claim to have a great deal of knowledge. 2.1 Things About Which We Know A Lot, Basic View Thesis 1BV1 In everyday life, people claim to know a great many things and attribute a great deal of knowledge to others. If we ask the average person to carefully consider what types of things she knows, she could try to come up with a list of examples. Feldman constructs the standard view as an attempt to articulate what would be the answer for such average persons. Of course, we must note that Feldman is writing in the context of an American university campus, where its average members have or are pursuing an American university education. We will see this cultural and educational background reflected in the standard view. Hopefully, the reader can accept that the view of knowledge held by such a person is a good starting point for exploring the nature of knowledge. 2.1.1 Feldman's The Standard View of Knowledge Referring to everyday, real people, not just idealized persons or even just experts, Feldman discusses categories of things about which the standard view says we know a great deal. I present here the categories of things we claim to know in the following list, with the examples he uses to illustrate each. Since I'm relying on Feldman here, there will be much text here in double quotes, these being direct quotes from his book. Like Feldman, I would note that the last two knowledge types are more controversial. We will discuss these in a moment. 
Also note that I will soon be referring to these specific categories of knowledge by their number, as C1 to C11. C1, our immediate environment. Oh, there's a chair over there. Oh, the radio is on. C2, our own thoughts and feelings. Oh, I'm excited about the new semester. Oh, I'm not looking forward to filling out my tax forms. C3, common sense facts about the world. Oh, France is a country in Europe. Oh, many trees drop their leaves in the fall. C4, scientific facts. Oh, smoking cigarettes causes lung cancer. In contrast, practical rationality is about doing the right thing, that is, the thing most like. Oh, the earth revolves around the Sunday. C5, mental states of others. Oh, my neighbor wants to get his house painted. Oh, that person over there who is laughing hard found the joke he just heard funny. C6, the past. Oh, George Washington was the first president of the United States. Oh, President Kennedy was assassinated. C7, the future. Oh, the sun will rise tomorrow. Oh, the Chicago Cubs will not win the World Series next year. C8, mathematics. Oh, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Oh, 5 times 3 equals 15. C9, conceptual truths. Oh, all bachelors are unmarried. Oh, red is a color. C10, morality asterisk. Oh, gratuitous torturing of infants is wrong. Oh, there's nothing wrong with taking a break from work once in a while. C11, religion asterisk. Oh, God exists. Oh, God is perfectly good and all-knowing. Most people, at least within the context of global science-informed culture, would say that these are categories within which we, as everyday individuals, have a great deal of knowledge, and that the examples given are representative of these kinds of knowledge. The asterisks placed after the final two indicate that these are exceptions since they are somewhat more controversial. Let's take a moment to discuss these. 2.1.2 The more controversial categories of knowledge. The last two types of knowledge, C10 and C11, are more controversial. First, C10 concerns moral knowledge. The idea of moral propositions constituting knowledge is somewhat more controversial, though not too controversial. Some philosophers have interpreted moral assertions as merely non-cognitive expressions. According to these non-cognitivists about moral propositions, such assertions are mere expressions of emotional attitudes, or actions taken by the person who believes them, e.g. the actions of taking a stand or of prescribing a behavior for others. If these philosophers are correct, then moral propositions cannot be true or false, and we cannot know moral propositions. That said, many or most moral philosophers do believe that moral assertions can be known and can be true. And they believe this is compatible with them being, in addition, expressions of emotional attitude or actions like the taking of a stand or the prescribing of a behavior for others. Among the general public, probably a vast majority of both religious and non-religious people would include C10 in the categories of knowledge and even be able to agree about a vast range of specific propositions within this category that they constitute knowledge.
I presume there would be less agreement concerning moral knowledge C10 than concerning the prior categories of knowledge C1, C9, but still a great deal of agreement. Explaining what moral propositions are, and if they can be true, how they derive their truth, are extremely challenging philosophical problems. Since at least the time of Plato, philosophers have attempted to provide an account of the foundations of moral terms like goodness and justice, and there is still no consensus on how to do this. Even if I could provide such a justification for moral knowledge, this would require an entire book series of its own. I could not accomplish this within the present book series. Second, let's discuss C11, religious knowledge. Polling data indicates that, as of 2010, that a large majority of people globally identified as religious. Since Feldman devised the standard view within an American context, and this is thus the context I focus on, I should note that this same study indicated that this predominance of religious affiliation was also the case within the United States. But we are interested in whether it is standard for people in the American context to say that we humans, know at least some religious propositions, and merely affiliating oneself with a religious identity or group does not imply that one believes that any religious propositions are known. In fact, strictly speaking, it does not even imply that a person believes any religious propositions. Is there any further data concerning not religious affiliation but specifically, religious beliefs? A similar study also indicates that, as of 2014, a very large majority of all Americans believed at least some religious propositions, and that a smaller percentage, but still a clear majority, believed with absolute certainty at least the basic proposition that God or a universal spirit exists. Based on this data, it is also safe to assume that more than half of Americans would have said they knew at least the proposition that God or a universal spirit exists, to speak nothing of other religious propositions. Thus, it is safe to assume that, as of 2014, a majority of Americans believed that they possessed at least some religious knowledge. Assuming this still holds true as of when you read this book, a majority of Americans believe they possess at least some religious knowledge. However, within this majority there clearly would be much disagreement over precisely which religious propositions are true besides a handful of the most general possible propositions like God or a universal spirit exists. I assume that most Christians claim to know that God is one but in three persons, Muslims, that God is one in one person, Hindus, that there are many gods. There is great disagreement concerning what the words God and universal spirit mean, and any large majority agreement seems only to come from stringing together an extremely long list of distinct propositions using the logical connective or to create a single, extremely long compound proposition. The God of Christianity, or the God of Islam, or at least one of the gods of Hinduism, exists. And perhaps we would have to slice things even more finely in order to accurately represent the diversity of belief. Different sects of each religion claim to know different propositions about God's preferences and beliefs and historical activities. For example, most religions claim to know that God sent to humanity a different list of true prophets, and that God wants humans to perform and abstain from performing a different list of activities. One person cannot have different mutually exclusive preferences, nor can that person both have performed a given historical activity and not have performed it as the conflicting lists of true prophets would imply. 
Thus, we would likely have to create a proposition more like, the God of Catholic Christianity, or the God of Lutheran Christianity, or the God of Pentecostal Christianity, or the God of Sunni Islam, or the God of Shia Islam, or the God of Ahmadiyya Islam, exists. At this point, one must ask how meaningful it is to say that we humans know that God or a universal spirit exists. How much different is this than saying, we humans know that a universal spirit does or does not exist? The latter statement is of course completely uninformative about the world, since every statement of this kind is necessarily true merely by the rules of logic, i.e. it is trivially true. We are seeking to understand what most people believe about the supernatural realm, and if the only way to assemble a large majority of people who claim to know a religious proposition is by stringing together a long list of contradictory propositions using the logical connective or, then it seems we are cheating. It seems in that case that there in fact is nothing like the amount of agreement about what can be known about the supernatural realm we at first thought there was. And this says nothing of atheists and agnostics who do not believe any religious propositions at all. Thus, in the U.S. context, and no doubt globally as well, religious knowledge is controversial. Even for those who would categorize at least some religious propositions as knowledge, they would find themselves disagreeing about all but a few of the most general, and thus least specific, and thus least informative, of these propositions. This is in stark contrast to the lists of known propositions that could be asserted for the other categories of knowledge, C1, C10. At least within the context of a U.S. university campus, where the culture of students and instructors has been heavily influenced by the natural and social sciences, there are an enormous number of propositions within these categories about which there can be broad consensus. Think of these propositions. 1. There is a glass on my table right now. 2. George Washington was the first president of the United States. 3. Pi is the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. Clearly, at least within the context of a science-informed culture, one could list an enormous number of propositions in any of these categories that would be uncontroversial in ways that all but a handful of very general religious propositions are not. I have just expressed that it will be difficult for me to attempt to incorporate C10, moral knowledge, into a theory of knowledge. Indeed, that would require an entire book series. Our discussion just now suggests to me that developing a theory of knowledge that includes C11, religious knowledge, would likely be even more difficult. 2.1.3 Feldman himself does not attempt to vindicate them. Perhaps it is another sign of the difficulty of vindicating the moral and religious categories of knowledge that Feldman himself does not actually attempt to vindicate them, despite what he claims to be doing. In Feldman's book, which explores the nature of knowledge, he indicates that he will proceed first by developing the standard view, by developing a theory of knowledge consistent with the standard view, and then by addressing challenges to the standard view. In the book's conclusion, Feldman concludes that he has articulated a modest theory of knowledge consistent with the standard view, and that this theory of knowledge seems to successfully vindicate the standard view against its detractors. However, in reality, Feldman's theory of knowledge does not attempt to vindicate all of the categories of knowledge in the standard view. Feldman maintains that he is seeking to develop a theory of knowledge consistent with, and thus to vindicate, the standard view, 
which includes C1, C11 in its categories of known propositions. However, since his theory of knowledge does not attempt to justify moral knowledge C10, or religious knowledge C11, it is closer to the truth to say he attempts to develop and vindicate only C1, C9. In fact, to be precise about it, Feldman's theory of knowledge also does not attempt to justify the last two of these categories of knowledge, mathematical knowledge C8, and conceptual knowledge C9. Thus, if we wanted to be so precise, we could define a more limited view of knowledge, calling it the worldly view of knowledge, identical to the standard view except now listing only C1, C7 among its categories of knowledge. The most precise thing one could say is that Feldman's book is an attempt to develop and vindicate a theory of knowledge consistent with the worldly view of knowledge. In this he follows the general scope limitations of the discipline of epistemology as a whole. Epistemology seems to leave the exploration of mathematical, conceptual, moral, and religious knowledge claims to other disciplines within philosophy. It leaves these explorations to the philosophy of mathematics, to metaphysics, to metaethics, and to metaphysics or the philosophy of religion, respectively. 2.1 point for focusing on certain categories of knowledge. So what types of knowledge shall I attempt to vindicate in this book series, if I am to maximize the amount I actually achieve? Vindicating moral knowledge would require a separate book series, and vindicating religious knowledge would be even more difficult. Meanwhile, I certainly want to vindicate all of the other categories of knowledge. And perhaps the fact that they are less controversial is a sign that they will be easier for me to vindicate. As I stated in this book's introduction, this book series arose from my desire to help us humans better address certain large problems we face in our shared world. If we are to cooperate to solve shared problems, we will need to be able to agree about worldly knowledge. If we cannot agree upon worldly means for confirming that human-caused climate change is real, we shall most certainly fail to muster the cooperation needed to address it. Thus we certainly need a theory that vindicates C1, C7, the worldly categories of knowledge. Meanwhile, without the abstract categories of knowledge we will also fail to address shared problems. We rely upon mathematical knowledge, C8, for all our scientific knowledge and most of our technologies. And we need conceptual knowledge, C9, as well. For if we possessed no way of knowing the meaning of our conceptual words we could not communicate at all, much less reason from the meaning of those words. I believe these less controversial categories of knowledge, the worldly and the abstract, will also be the easiest for me to vindicate. The entire field of epistemology to date has been focused upon providing theories to account for worldly knowledge, so I shall have much theory from which to draw in vindicating these categories of knowledge. And within the fields of metaphysics and the philosophy of mathematics there are excellent theories to account for conceptual knowledge and mathematical knowledge. So what shall I do? I will proceed in steps. I will define a different view of knowledge that is identical to Feldman's the standard view with the exception that it excludes C10 and C11 on moral and religious knowledge. I will call this the basic view of knowledge. I will devote most of this present book series to developing a theory of knowledge that vindicates the basic view. Only once this is accomplished will I attempt to extend the theory of knowledge to include first religious knowledge and then moral knowledge. 
Thus, this book series will proceed using the following steps. 1. Develop a theory of knowledge that vindicates the basic view of knowledge. Thus, this theory of knowledge will only vindicate categories of knowledge C1, C9. This will be the topic of the present book series on knowledge. 2. Explore how our theory of knowledge relates to religious knowledge claims, including whether it can be extended to include C11, religious knowledge. 3. Attempt to extend our theory of knowledge by developing a theory of the nature of morality that might enable us to add C10 to our categories of known propositions. This will prompt the end of the book series and point the way to the next book series in this collection, the book series on goodness. Thus I will first attempt to vindicate only the basic view, and then attempt to extend our theory of knowledge to include the more controversial and difficult categories of knowledge included in the standard view. Using this approach, we may yet end up vindicating all of the categories of knowledge included in the standard view, C1, C11. But by focusing first and foremost on vindicating the types of knowledge that may be the easiest to vindicate, the least controversial types, we shall hopefully at least succeed at vindicating those types of knowledge, even if we cannot do so for the more controversial types of knowledge. Regardless, I believe that this staged approach will provide us with our best chances of vindicating as much knowledge as possible. 2.1.5 The Basic View of Knowledge, Thesis 1BV1 Here, then, is the list of categories of knowledge that will be included in the basic view of knowledge, namely, item C1, C9 from the standard view of knowledge. C1, our immediate environment. Oh, there's a chair over there. Oh, the radio is on. C2, our own thoughts and feelings. Oh, I'm excited about the new semester. Oh, I'm not looking forward to filling out my tax forms. C3, common sense facts about the world. Oh, France is a country in Europe. Oh, many trees drop their leaves in the fall. C4, scientific facts. Oh, smoking cigarettes causes lung cancer. In contrast, practical rationality is about doing the right thing, that is, the thing most likely. Oh, the earth revolves around the Sunday. C5, mental states of others. Oh, my neighbor wants to get his house painted. Oh, that person over there who is laughing hard found the joke he just heard funny. C6, the past. Oh, George Washington was the first president of the United States. Oh, President Kennedy was assassinated. C7, the future. Oh, the sun will rise tomorrow. Oh, the Chicago Cubs will not win the World Series next year. C8, mathematics. Oh, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Oh, 5 times 3 equals 15. C9, conceptual truths. Oh, all bachelors are unmarried. Oh, red is a color. As stated, these are the only categories of knowledge that we will include in the basic view of knowledge, the view of knowledge this book series will seek to vindicate. Thus, I believe that the best starting point with respect to understanding knowledge is to propose the following first thesis within the basic view. BV1 We know a large variety of things in categories C1, C9. 
In other words, the basic view states that we know many things, and that they fall into a large number of different categories, nine in total, including propositions about our shared, natural world, mathematics, things true by definition, and the future. 2.1.6 Relating the basic view to the standard view In the present book series, I will attempt a project slightly more ambitious than Feldman's. As discussed, Feldman actually only attempts to vindicate what I have called the worldly view of knowledge, whereas I seek to vindicate the basic view. Thus my theory of knowledge seeks to vindicate not only the worldly knowledge categories C1, C7, but also what one might call the abstract knowledge categories, the mathematical C8 and conceptual C9 categories of knowledge. However, for simplicity, when referring to Feldman's project in that book, I may sometimes speak as though Feldman is seeking to vindicate the same view of knowledge as myself, the basic view. Indeed, what I will often be doing, at least early in this series, is taking Feldman's theories as starting points and finding or devising modifications or alternatives that both better accomplish his goal of justifying C1, C7 and expand the scope to include C8 and C9. Along the way, it will be easier to speak as though Feldman and I are pursuing a theory of knowledge with the same scope. I leave it to the reader to remember the qualification I am now noting. With that said, let us now continue articulating the view of knowledge that will be the focus of the present book series, The Basic View of Knowledge. As we've seen, its first thesis, BV1, lists the categories within which humans possess a great deal of knowledge. And as discussed, the basic view is identical to Feldman's The Standard View of Knowledge except that the standard view lists more categories of knowledge. Now, the next question is, what other theses are included in the basic view of knowledge? 2.2 Our Sources of Knowledge, Basic View Thesis 2BV2 The second thesis of the basic view concerns our sources of the knowledge that the first thesis says we possess a lot of. Since on everything but the first thesis the basic view is identical to Feldman's The Standard View, we will adopt as the second thesis of the basic view the second thesis of the standard view from Feldman. And as discussed, we will speak as though Feldman is articulating and attempting to develop and vindicate the basic view of knowledge. I summarize Feldman's proposed sources of knowledge in the list below, along with Feldman's explanation for each, with comments from myself where needed. Also note that I will soon be referring to these specific sources of knowledge by their number, as S1 to S6. S1 Perception Oh, if we know about our environment, then perception and sensation play a central role in acquiring this knowledge. S2. Memory Oh, memory obviously is crucial in our knowledge of the past, and also in certain aspects of our knowledge of current facts. For example, my knowledge that the tree that I see through my window is a maple relies on my perception of the tree, and my memory of the way maples look. S3. Testimony Oh, another source of much of our knowledge is the testimony of others. Testimony is not here restricted to statements made on the witness stand under oath. It is much broader than that. It includes what other people tell you, including what they tell you on television or in books and newspapers. S4. Introspection Oh, if perception is our awareness of external things through sight, hearing, and the other senses, then perception does not account for our knowledge of our own internal states.
you may now know that you feel sleepy, or that you are thinking about what you will do on the weekend. But this is not by means of perception in the sense just given. It is, rather, introspection. So this is another potential source of knowledge. S5, Reasoning. Oh next, sometimes we know things by reasoning or inference. When we know some facts and see that those facts support some further fact, we can come to know that further fact. Scientific knowledge, for example, seems to arise from inferences from observational data. S6, Rational Insight. Oh finally, it seems that we know something simply because we can see that they are true. That is, we have the ability to think about things and to discern certain simple truths. Though this is a matter of some controversy, our knowledge of elementary arithmetic, simple logic, and conceptual truths seem to fall into this category. For lack of a better term, we will say we know these things by means of rational insight. Feldman notes that the basic view does not claim that these sources are perfect. After all, our senses can mislead us, we can reason badly, etc. Rather, it merely asserts that it is sometimes possible to get knowledge from these sources. Thus, following Feldman, we will cite this list of sources of knowledge as the second thesis of the basic view. BV2 Our primary sources of knowledge are S1, S6. Note that these sources are available to human beings regardless of religious beliefs or other social identity associations. This means that the basic view appeals to sources of knowledge with the potential to bridge such divides. The basic view states that our sources of knowledge are perception, memory, testimony, introspection, reasoning, and rational insight. But some will object that I have missed one or more sources of knowledge, like science or religious and paranormal types of insight. Let me address these in turn. First, some may suggest that science should be added as a potential source of knowledge. Discussing the standard view, which is the basic view plus C10 and C11, moral and religious knowledge types, Feldman hears you, but chooses to assume here that science is not a foundational source of knowledge but rather is a combination of perception, memory, testimony, and reasoning. I agree with Feldman on this, and so also do not include a separate knowledge source for science. Second, let us discuss the idea of including another source of knowledge, call it S7, for religious or mystical insight or extrasensory perception. Feldman says that such a source of knowledge would be more controversial, even though he includes a category for religious knowledge in the first thesis of the standard view C11, he does not include a separate source of knowledge for religious or spiritual beliefs in its second thesis. He says that including such a source in the list of sources for knowledge might make the view appear less deserving of the title, the standard view. One could defend Feldman's choice to exclude S7 in the following way. Much work has been undertaken among religious scholars to show that religious claims can be justified on the basis of merely the sources listed in S1, S6. For evidence we could point to Christian apologetic, the field that seeks to justify Christian doctrine by appealing to reason and evidence, including, often crucially, strong testimony. Of course, this would belie the fact that many people probably do believe in a separate religious or spiritual source of knowledge, in addition to S1, S6, many would want to include such a source, 
listing it as S7. For instance, some would cite an ability to learn things about the spiritual realm through some kind of mystical intuition accessible through meditation or prayer and fasting. Perhaps, then, to be consistent with the choice to include religious knowledge in the first thesis of the standard view, Feldman should have included also a separate source of religious or spiritual insight in the second thesis. Regardless, what we will do is follow the approach we adopted in the case of the first thesis. The notion of there being a distinctive religious or spiritual source of knowledge is at least as controversial and difficult to vindicate as the religious category of knowledge. We chose we would adopt a staged approach. First we will exclude the religious category of knowledge from the view of knowledge, the basic view, for which we will develop a theory of knowledge. Then we will attempt to extend that theory of knowledge to include the religious category of knowledge. I will include the sources of knowledge within the same staged approach. First I will exclude religious or spiritual insight from the list of knowledge sources I include in the basic view. Then, once I have developed the basic view into a theory of knowledge, I will attempt to extend the list of knowledge sources to include religious or spiritual insight. As such, I do not include a seventh source of knowledge for religious or spiritual insight within the basic view. The basic view thus starts as the combination of the two theses just mentioned presented below. The basic view, preliminary version. BV1. We know a large variety of things in categories C1, C9. BV2. Our primary sources of knowledge are S1, S6. So, the core of the basic view is that we humans generally know a lot, and that this knowledge can be traced to human abilities and testimony, presumably itself based ultimately on human abilities. The equivalent of these two theses is where Feldman stops in his formulation of the standard view, with of course C10 and C11 added to the first thesis. However, to achieve our goal in this book series, it will be essential we add one more thesis, to make explicit something implicit in Feldman's discussion of the standard view, and thus also in the basic view. 2.3 Veritaism, the basic view thesis 3 BV3 The central goal of this book series will be to give an account of the nature of knowledge that is both compatible with the basic view and able to withstand important critiques of the basic view. Thus, I will in this book series seek to vindicate the basic view by vindicating a complete theory of knowledge compatible with it. However, before I can begin the journey toward the vindication of the basic view, I will need to address something problematically ambiguous about it. As presented, the basic view could be relativist about truth. For example, it could be compatible with cultural relativism about truth, the view that what is true is relative to the authoritative beliefs of one's culture. If we were to populate the list of things known, BV1, from the cultures of Hellenistic Greece, medieval France, the Caliphate of Cordoba, or even early 17th century England, each would create a very different list from that for contemporary science-based cultures. Let us take the first listed culture as an example, that of the Hellenistic Greeks. Plato and Aristotle both advocated a geocentric model of the universe with a spherical, stationary Earth. It is likely that most educated Greeks in the Hellenistic period, which began just before Aristotle's death, would have included in BV1 the proposition, HG, for Hellenistic geocentrism. 
hg the earth is a stationary sphere at the center of the universe does this mean that we should include proposition hg as an example of known propositions in thesis bv one of the basic view contemporary global science informed culture asserts that hg is false and so would deny that hg constitutes knowledge is the basic view compatible with hg being true for the hellenistic greeks but false for us in other words according to the basic view is the truth of a proposition relative to the cultural context in which it is believed is the basic view relativist about truth and thus about knowledge this possibility of a relativist reading of bv1 and bv2 flows from the fact that this reading is possible for feldman's equivalent two theses for the standard view of knowledge sv1 and sv2 did feldman intend to permit this relativist reading of the standard view no he did not context reveals that for feldman the standard view sees truth as absolute and sees absolute truth as relevant to everyday knowledge seeking and knowledge attribution the context surrounding the standard view's list of known types of things sv1 shows that feldman was speaking of the authoritative science-based beliefs of contemporary science-based cultures i agree with this implicit assumption in the standard view and apply it also to the basic view's list of types of things known bv1 to keep the basic view similarly absolutist about truth and knowledge but how exactly does this assumption of a science-based cultural context make the basic view absolutist about truth and knowledge one possible account is as follows the absolutism comes from the fact that these beliefs are made likely to be true by the influence of scientific and related institutions that have long been successfully operating to improve belief in the direction of truth these institutions are effective at making progress toward truth and have shaped authoritative opinion in contemporary science-based cultures as a result as long as i can fashion an account of knowledge compatible with the list of known propositions for such a culture that account of knowledge will see absolute truth as relevant to everyday knowledge seeking and knowledge attribution since the basic view incorporates this assumption of a science-based cultural context constraining the list of known propositions in bv1 the basic view is absolutist about truth and knowledge but what do i mean by saying the basic view is absolutist versus relativist about truth and knowledge this is a key distinction that shall come up at several points in this book to clarify the sense in which i take the basic view to be absolutist about truth and knowledge let me introduce the concept of transcendent truth and the related concepts of veritatism and its opposite non-veritatism veritatism is a perspective on knowledge and its relation to the concept of truth specifically veritatism is the view that when discussing the everyday seeking and attribution of knowledge absolute truth is a legitimate and practically usable concept to wield because truth is the ideal that regulates the pursuit of knowledge Another concept that is closely related to absolute truth is transcendent truth. According to one definition, if truth is transcendent then truths exist or depend on the nature of reality rather than on human persuasion. Because transcendent truth is determined by reality, this implies that things can be true regardless of whether anyone believes them. Veritists believe that truth is moderately transcendent from belief in the sense that things can be true whether anyone believes them or not, and that truth is not in principle inaccessible to 
or unknowable by, human beings. They believe that the concept of truth is both legitimate and essential within practical knowledge-seeking and knowledge-attribution activities, both at the individual level and at the social level. Note that veritaism is not unique to contemporary global science-informed cultures, but rather is present across different contemporary cultures and across history, even though approaches to pursuing truth have varied across these dimensions. Veritistic theories of knowledge are absolutist about truth and knowledge in the sense that they see truth as moderately transcendent. Thus they see the truth of a statement as the same regardless of the perspective from which one views the question, and see this transcendent truth to be relevant to everyday knowledge attribution because it is not in principle inaccessible to human beings. Non-veritaism, in contrast, considers transcendent truth to be an illegitimate concept to wield when discussing knowledge. Non-veritists see transcendent truth as either non-existent or completely inaccessible to human beings and therefore of no applicability to practical knowledge-seeking and knowledge-attribution. One prominent version of non-veritaism sees knowledge as merely socially approved belief and rational knowledge-seeking practices as merely locally socially approved practices, not objectively superior in any regard. Non-veritistic theories of knowledge are relativist about truth, seeing the truth of a statement as dependent upon the perspective from which one views the question. At least implicitly, it is clear that the standard view as articulated by Feldman is veritistic about knowledge, and thus views absolute truth as relevant to everyday knowledge attribution. In order to respond to the challenges of those who are relativists about knowledge and thus non-veritists, I have concluded that I need to be clear up front that the basic view is veritistic. To accomplish this, we will need to add a third thesis to the basic view, a veritaism thesis. But for this, we will first need to clearly articulate a theory of veritaism by analyzing it into components. It seems to me that we can break veritaism down into three component theses. Note that I will soon be referring to these veritaism theses by their numbers as V1, V2, and V3. V1 For all the categories of knowledge, including knowledge about the world, there are things that are absolutely true, things true not just relative to one's cultural or other perspective, but true for all people. V2 there is such a thing as absolute rationality. There are ways of forming beliefs and attributing knowledge that are really rational, as distinct from merely locally accepted as rational. V3. Absolute truth is not in principle unknowable or inaccessible to human beings, and absolute rationality is not in principle impractical for human beings. The concepts of absolute truth and absolute rationality are useful, and indeed necessary within everyday knowledge-seeking and knowledge-attribution practices. Veritaism is thus absolutist about truth and rationality, and it states that absolute truth and rationality are both useful and necessary for the everyday pursuit and identification of knowledge. Now that we have provided an account of veritaism, we can articulate a thesis that explains what it means that the basic view takes a veritistic stance on knowledge. Let us call it BV3. BV3. As articulated in V1, V2, and V3, the concepts of absolute truth and absolute rationality are useful and necessary for everyday knowledge-seeking and attribution. We have thus articulated in BV3 
a relationship between the concepts of absolute truth and absolute knowledge. We have in BV3 a principle that stakes out a veritistic position on knowledge, and thus absolutist positions on truth and rationality. Now we are ready to add thesis BV3 to the first two theses to create our full articulation of the basic view. The basic view, final version. BV1. We know a large variety of things in categories C1, C9. BV2. Our primary sources of knowledge are S1, S6. BV3. As articulated in V1, V2, and V3, the concepts of absolute truth and absolute rationality are useful and necessary for everyday knowledge seeking and attribution. This completes the basic view of knowledge. The rest of this book will articulate, critically evaluate, and try to vindicate a theory of knowledge consistent with this view. If this book series succeeds in vindicating its developed theory of knowledge, it will have justified the claims that there are absolute standards about good knowledge-seeking and knowledge-attribution practice that apply to all people, that we in fact possess much knowledge, and that the sources of knowledge listed above are the ones we should all turn to in order to build knowledge across social lines that currently divide us. As I've stated, the social lines that divide us concerning knowledge claims can include those of religious belief, ethnicity, and nationality. My account of knowledge will have to be very strong indeed, capable of withstanding rigorous critique, if it is to be convincing to people across all these divides. So how shall we begin the process of building such a thorough understanding of the topic of knowledge itself? We begin with the activity that usually initiates any pursuit of knowledge, asking questions. In this case we ask challenging questions that arise when one examines the basic view of knowledge. And that completes our episode's reading from my 2019 book, Knowledge by Acceptance, Second Edition. I hope you found it interesting. For more information, including links to Amazon, from which you can buy the ebook or the paperback, see my website, jamescraft.org. And that's graph spelled G-R-A-F. All the best.